Content warning. Much like the rest of this book, this chapter contains essentially dehumanization and reduction of the human spirit and endeavor to sensory satisfaction. And not much else. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. Today we will be continuing our read of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley with Chapter 16. Huzzah! Music. Ah, well, 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 it's a place for storing water. That's awful, Dave. <laughs> How are you doing, Ruth? I'm okay. My brain is swimming with the discussions of um, healthcare systems and attitudes towards preventative care and promoting of health. And it's, it's my, yeah. So there's a conference because, of course, we are in the day and age of COVID. And it's a virtual conference, and so you just end up, there's just so much you take in. Physical conferences, you can't really take in that much information. Like You take a big chunk, and then your brain goes, okay, that's it. You're having a break now. Drink coffee and just try and stay awake. And part of it is, side note, a study was done that investigated the, uh, the CO2 levels. CO2 levels in the rooms of medical conferences, so a medical research conference presented this as a research it was funny and they were checking the co2 levels and the o2 levels and all that and the room was suboptimal for for um inhaling appropriate amounts of oxygen so there was too much carbon dioxide accumulating because they were in hotel rooms generally or large hotel halls and their circulation of the air it's adequate but it's not optimal for functioning at the level that they are particularly because they're in there for like so and so many hours with no break and and that that uh, lowers cognitive ability. Yes, and it was it was actually uh, something someone pointed out that this this is actually uh, not fantastic considering cognitive ability is one of the major things you need during a medical conference or medical <laughs> yes. training space. Um, so it was funny uh, because people kept saying, "Why am I always so tired?" And part of it is because you're you're getting high intensity amounts and a very high density, high intensity of information. Right. And concepts, and some of them outside of your field, some of them within your field. It's quite broad. Um, and then the other thing is that you're not getting enough oxygen and you've got too much CO2 in the room. That's not going to help. Um, also, no one sleeps. No one does. <laughs> no, no one sleeps. That lowers cognitive ability too? <laughs> no one sleeps. What is sleep? Um, and so it just gets very, um, th- those spaces get really funny really fast. I mean, you're just drinking so much bad coffee. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between drinking a lot of normal coffee and drinking a lot of bad coffee. Yeah. You end up drinking like stacks and stacks of, you know, the, you know, how hotels have like three different levels of coffee. There's the nice barista kind of level coffee, which is decent. Then you've got the, um, the filter coffee that isn't quite right, but it does the job. And then there's the instant coffee and usually conferences. (laughs) live somewhere between the latter two. And it's one of those giant tins of the lowest oh, grade gosh. instant coffee. Very often, yes, especially if they're being environmentally conscious. It just, just, it's not good times. Um, but yeah, so virtual conference means a lot of pre-recorded sessions, a lot of Zoom sessions um, that are live. The live ones are really 
fascinating because you can ask the questions and if they get answered live, you get more of an idea and can interact. The the ones that are pre-recorded, you ask questions usually manually, so typing it. Um, so my little fingers have been tapping away merrily along, and it's been a bit it's been a bit intense. And it's not a field that I'm directly. So th- I'm listening to a lot of clinical presentations and clinical speeches. There's a little bit of basic science. That's my area. Basic science is the stuff at the bench, folks. Um, <laughs> so my stuff is the bench side. There more. There's a lot more bed side so to speak mm-hmm. and yeah it's been interesting noticing the gap and the, ch- the the disparity in approach i'm coming at it from both a patient and a research perspective which is different and then you can and there are some really good researchers out there like fascinating open clinicians clinicians with like this mindset of one of them was describing how um when there's a barrier you don't see a barrier as a barrier you see a barrier as an opportunity if there's a challenge, if something is, is not known or is still like they're, they're stumbling over it. So they literally, this concept of taking a stumbling block and turning it into a stepping stone for, for learning and growth. Totally. Like there's a couple of really good presenters on that. So if it's any comfort, folks, there are researchers and clinicians out there that actually genuinely are trying their best to cultivate a, a mentality that not only sees each patient as an individual, but also each time they are confronted by something they don't know, they will try their best to learn and figure it out and actually admit that they don't know yet. Ah. Operative word, yet. We will figure Mm. it out. Or at least we'll learn from it. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So it's been good. There's been good dialogue. It's just very overwhelming at times. But at least you have uh, adequate oxygen and the coffee is presumably better. Sort of. <laughs> in the mornings, I lack the the necessary energy to make myself a proper coffee. So some mornings, it's an instant, but it's fine. Does the job. Does the job. But yes, one day. Um, and and speaking of coffee, um, I, I I just caught glance of the first paragraph or first two paragraphs of of the text. And there's a mention of caffeine, which is making me kind of chuckle a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I mean, uh, today's possibly going to be a very important chapter because um, even though last time we said, oh, that last chapter, Bernard went, sorry, that last chapter, John went too far. <laughs> last chapter, John went too far. That should be the title. Last chapter, <laughs> this chapter, John went too far. Let's see. No, this chapter... John, last chapter, John went too far. What are the consequences of his actions? What will happen? There was a riot. It was dispersed. What will be the next step in the inevitable destruction of John? Next time on Brave New World. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, so, so my guess is things go very, very, like, there are consequences. Consequences being goodbye Helmholtz, goodbye... <laughs> Well, John gets sent off somewhere. It's not his fault, technically. Mm. So there might be some leniency, but just kept separate from society. And um, Bernard should pay the consequence. <laughs> I have no problem with that. I, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm not even sympathetic. I, I love the fact that it's like, yeah, Bernard deserves to suffer for this. Yes, yes, he does. It, it, it reminds me of that meme, you know, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. Pretty much. It's it's pretty much it. Like, that's that's the thing. 
I think sometimes we want to know what the consequences of it. Like we don't realize what the consequences of our actions can be. And then we do the thing and then we don't, we, we don't go, oh yeah, that was probably not the best idea in the world. You know, there, there, there's a great Calvin and Hobbes comic about that where um, he's basically, he wants to throw a rocket, Susie Durkins. And he's like, if this is a bad thing to do, then God, give me a sign. And he looks up and nothing happens. So he runs away and <laughs> and the next uh, the next panel is him basically beat up on the ground. And he's like, why does the universe always give you the sign after you do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that's the thing. It's so funny. Oh, poor Calvin. He, he, he had issues. He, he had issues. Well, oh, it, yeah, it, it's interesting to look at um, even like comic strips from the 80s and 90s uh, based on what we know today about certain character traits and ailments and such. Yeah, well, I think we've, we've always known and there have been these, these uh, descriptors that have applied always, but the problem is that we have not recognized them. It gets a bit messy, that whole discussion, but yes, mm. yes. So, uh, are you ready to venture forth into chapter 16? Ford, yes. Ford? <laughs> I'm just, I've got a, a bit of a grin happening. <laughs> what, what was that thing that Bernard said when he learned that um, John was throwing Soma out in public? He was like Ford and Fliver? Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't um, John. It was Helmholtz. Helmholtz was on the phone. Mm-hmm. And then he said it, and, and and Bernard was like, wait, what's going on? It's like, dude, dude, we've got to go. <laughs> Ford and... Uh, well, I think he told Bernard what was happening, but it could have been Helmholtz that said Ford and Flibber. Ford and Flibber, there's actually something going on. And then I just, you know, I said it last week, but I just imagine that when Helmholtz saw what John was doing, he's like, yay, let me join in the fun. <laughs> Yeah, like, he's the kid that wants to, I don't know, cause chaos, I guess. He wants to. He wants a reaction. He wants to dumb his nose at the societies, and he, he's basically that edgy teen that's like, yeah, yeah, people say you shouldn't litter. Well, look at me. I'm going to litter. That'll show him. Yeah, I don't know. Something is wrong with Helmholtz. So let's well, have a something look. is wrong with everyone who's been brought up in this society. Well, there's that too, but yes, yes. Something is up. Let us figure this out. So, something has gone rotten in the state of Helmholtz. Funny. <laughs> okay. Actually, I, I I foresee John quoting a lot of Hamlet in these next few scenes. Let's find out. Sixteen. The room into which the three were ushered was the controller's study. His Fordship will be down in a moment. The Gamma Butler left them to themselves. Helmholtz laughed aloud. It's more like a caffeine solution party than a trial, he said, and let himself fall into the most luxurious of the pneumatic armchairs. Cheer up, Bernard, he added, catching sight of his friend's green, unhappy face. But Bernard would not be cheered. Without answering, without even looking at Helmholtz, he went and sat down on the most uncomfortable chair in the room, carefully chosen in the obscure hope of somehow deprecating the wrath of the higher powers. The savage, meanwhile, wandered restlessly around the room, peering with a vague, superficial inquisitiveness at the books in the shelves, at the soundtrack rolls, and reading machine bobbins in their numbered pigeonholes. 
On the table under the window lay a massive volume bound in limp black leather surrogate and stamped with large golden T's. He picked it up and opened it. My Life and Work by Our Ford. The book had been published at Detroit by the Society for the Propagation of Fordian Knowledge. Idly, he turned the pages, read a sentence here, a paragraph there, and had just come to the conclusion that the book didn't interest him when the door opened and the resident world controller for Western Europe walked briskly into the room. Mustafa Mond shook hands with all three of them, but it was to the savage that he addressed himself. So, you don't much like civilization, Mr. Savage, he said. The savage looked at him. He had been prepared to lie, to bluster, to remain sullenly unresponsive, but reassured by the good-humored intelligence of the controller's face, he decided to tell the truth, straightforwardly. No, he shook his head. Bernard started and looked horrified. What would the controller think? To be labeled as the friend of a man who said that he didn't like civilization, said it openly, and of all people, to the controller. It was terrible. But John, he began. A look from Mustafa Mond reduced him to an abject silence. Of course, the savage went on to admit, there are some very nice things. All that music in the air, for instance. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about my ears and sometimes voices. The savage's face lit up with a sudden pleasure. Have you read it too? he asked. I thought nobody knew about that book here in England. Almost nobody. I'm one of the very few. It's prohibited, you see. But as I make the laws here, I can also break them. With impunity, Mr. Marks, he added, turning to Bernard, which I'm afraid you can't do. Bernard sank into a yet more hopeless misery. But why is it prohibited, asked the savage, in the excitement of meeting a man who had read Shakespeare, he had momentarily forgotten everything else. The controller shrugged his shoulders. Because it's old. That's the chief reason. We haven't any use for old things here. Even when they're beautiful particularly when they're beautiful. Beauty's attractive, and we don't want people to be attracted by old things. We want them to like the new ones. But the new ones are so stupid and horrible. Those plays where there's nothing but helicopters flying about, and you feel the people kissing, he made a grimace. Goats and monkeys. Only in Othello's word could he find an adequate vehicle for his contempt and hatred. Nice tame animals, anyhow, the controller murmured parenthetically. Why don't you let them see Othello instead? I've told you, it's old. Besides, they couldn't understand it. Yes, that was true. He remembered how Helmholtz had laughed at Romeo and Juliet. Well then, he said after a pause, something new that's like Othello, and that they could understand. That's what we've all been wanting to write, said Helmholtz, breaking a long silence. And it's what you never will write, said the controller, because if it were really like Othello, nobody could understand it however new it might be, and if it were new, it couldn't possibly be like a fellow. Why not? Yes, why not, Helmholtz repeated. He too was forgetting the unpleasant realities of the situation. Green with anxiety and apprehension, only Bernard remembered them. The others ignored him. Why not? Because our world is not the same as a fellow's world. You can't make flippers without steel, and you can't make tragedies without social instability. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want, and they never want what they can't get. They're well off. They're safe. They're never ill. They're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They're plagued with no mothers or fathers. They've got no wives or children or lovers to feel strongly about. 
They're so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, they're Soma. Which you go and chuck out of the window in the name of liberty, Mr. Savage. Liberty, he laughed. Expecting Deltas to know what liberty is, and now expecting them to understand Othello, my good boy. Yeah, yeah, he, because they've been deliberately... Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, uh, well, do you want to kind of talk about how he, he well, makes he, a very he, good point where, like, A, they couldn't understand Shakespeare here, but also because um, of the idea that if, if it was anything like the play, they wouldn't understand it. And if they could understand it because of the way they're conditioned, it wouldn't be anything like the play. So it's like the whole pursuit is fruitless. Yeah, and then there's additional... I mean, they like fruitlessness, though, because it means that people consume things, but that's another topic. Mm. Um, but the thing is, they're saying here, um, they've created this... Again, we were talking about this in 1984. We're talking about now. Um, stagnancy. The mm-hmm. Stagnancy is the the way... If we only have... Um, I guess this is this is a conditioned contentment. If I, I, I can't word this quite the way I want. There's contentment that we receive that when we, when we are going through something that's challenging and we accept that something is challenging and that we grow from it, like we were talking mm. before, stepping stones. You know, stumbling blocks become stepping stones. And it doesn't mean that you actively go and seek suffering, but that you accept that there's an understanding that suffering is invariably part of living in terms of suffering can be as simple as you stub your toe or it can be as simple as um, they're saying they get what they want and they don't want what they can't get. Yeah, well, right? even, even if we talked about grief uh, one or two chapters ago, yeah, the idea yeah. of a family member dying is alien to the society and the grief yeah. associated with it. Yeah, and whereas grief, although it is incredibly painful and difficult, there's a value in grief because mm-hmm. if you value grief or if you acknowledge grief and the source of grief you value the existence of others and you value life yes because without knowledge and kind of the understanding of death it is hard to value the time you have yes and 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 that's not the point though of this society it's not about valuing life and in fact they they um that was one of the comments that came out like as if any one individual would actually matter mm. like yeah. that kind of dismissive attitude towards the lives and the existence of others and then then on top of that you've got this level of the deltas anyway would never understand it either way because they don't have the cognitive capacities um but even the alphas don't understand yes. shakespeare but that's what the thing is. Like he's kind of going. You expected the deltas to actually know what liberty is. I mean, the alphas and the betas and the gammas—they're not going to get it either. But they're not going to get it because they've been conditioned to heckin' back. Mm. The deltas, although they've been conditioned, on top of being conditioned, they also have had their cognitive abilities severely curtailed in order to um, be controlled. And then on top of that, the soma is used to deal with their discomfort because they can't be conditioned. Mm. To, to take the soma, they're in, so they they are conditioned to take the soma. They're conditioned only to take the soma, not necessarily other activities to help them. Like for example, the the churchy equivalent, that's for alphas and betas. It's not for anyone else. Um, I just, I mean, maybe it's obvious in retrospect, but it just kind of hit me. That's one of the actual biggest horrors of this society is the idea that once your conditioning ends, like when you reach adulthood and they stop the hypnopedia. That's it. You're a finished human. There is no more room to grow. You are yeah. exactly what they want you to be, and that's all you will ever be, and you'll be happy with it. Well, 
you'll not know better. Mm-hmm. Or if you start asking questions like Helmholtz, you end up getting shut down. Mm-hmm. Which, which I think inevitably anyone who gets into that state ends up getting sent off to 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 the like exile, um, which is evil as well. But yeah, so this idea of expecting them to know what liberty is. And the idea is, I think he's implied it, it is that the, what you were saying before, that the Deltas have such a rough lot in life, the Deltas and the Epsilons have such a lot, rough lot in life, that Soma is possibly the only escape and only relief that they have mm. when things go wrong. That's that's all they've got. Yeah. And and you that is their liberty, essentially, which sucks. Yeah. But that's the only liberty they've been given. So, yeah, Othello would be a fun one to try and explain. Although I just thought with the prejudice they have towards the other classes, I think they'd understand the racism of the play. Yes, but they wouldn't understand why Othello is in that position to begin with. Mm, And and why the prejudice is a bad thing. Yep. Or even why um, they should care about the fact that he wants... like, Like, why... But everyone belongs to everyone. Why is there an argument? Like, what's going on? Why would you even want to? Like, it's it's just, yeah. Yeah. Why is Iago so twisted? Yeah. Why is there such jealousy? jealousy? The concept of jealousy mm-hmm. wouldn't count. So, yes. Moving on. Okay. The sandwich was silent for a little. All the same, he insisted obstinately, Othello's good. Othello's better than those feelies. Of course it is, the controller agreed. But that's the price we have to pay for stability. You've got to choose between happiness and what people used to call high art. We've sacrificed the high art. We have the feelies and the scent organ instead. Can I just interject? That sentence right there kind of makes me uh, think about the howling on the internet when Martin Scorsese last year called Marvel movies theme park rides. Yeah, it's not that I disagree. I don't agree. I think it's a bit complex. I think those things. Yeah, but I, I, I'm talking like the, the the negative response to that, though. Like it was overwhelming. Yeah, but that's because people were were like it, it was making a presumption as to what is and isn't high art. So that's a bit. I think that's, that's a, always like been a, a yeah. Yeah, that's that's where you end up with this whole argument of but who gets to determine this? Mm. If it has a positive impact on the society or it has meaning, there's a difference. Like mm. if you can't get meaning from it, that's one thing. But if someone else can actually tell you and sh- demonstrate that there is meaning for them, then it's different. If it's just about making you feel good, mm. that's another thing. If it makes you think and question and actually wonder about things that's another thing i think like with anything art is very dependent on how it's done and what it's meant to to like what's the intention behind it there was something that just came up um you know what this is it's, it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but or not even that you know that expression throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. in order to avoid the fact that the water sometimes gets cold or dirty they've just dumped the bathtub and the child in it and everything's just gone like all you get is is just this constantly hot water and there is nothing else in it. You can't have a baby in the bath water for it to stay clean. It's sterile. It's super sterile. Like, yeah. And it's it's beyond... He said, you, we've sacrificed high art, but there's more than that. You've sacrificed your very humanity. Mm. Um, and, and I guess after, after I've just said it, it made me think about how um, Shakespeare as we regard as like the pinnacle of literature was the uh, base entertainment of its day. Yeah, exactly. And it was simply because it was discussion. It was 
there to stimulate discussion. It was there to encourage and endorse and manipulate technically the audience. I mean, this whole debates, depending on what it is, um, was a little bit of propaganda, a little bit of keeping the queen and kings mm-hmm. happy. Like, so it's all art is also influenced by the age. Hence, when we read this book, we give the warning with all these books that there is context that is relevant to the time in which they were written. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's still some universal themes that just push through. And I, I think that's how art uh, persists. If it has, yeah. if if it can, if it can exist outside the time it was made. Yes, yes, that's it, that's it. But yes, so, but yes. Okay, uh, we have the feelies in the scent organ instead, but they don't mean anything. They mean themselves. They mean a lot of agreeable sensations to the audience, but they're they're told by an idiot. The controller laughed. You're not being very polite to your friend, Mister Watson one of our most distinguished emotional engineers. But he's right, said Helmholtz gloomily, because it is idiotic, writing when there's nothing to say. Precisely. But that requires the most enormous ingenuity. You're making flippers out of the absolute minimum of steel works of art out of practically nothing but pure sensation. The savage shook his head. It all seems to me quite horrible. Of course it does. Actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery. Let's go back. Actual happiness. So he's claiming that they're all happy because they don't have to suffer. Mm. Or what they, they determined was suffering. Yeah. Overcompensations for misery. So basically the challenges and difficulties in life lead people to overcompensate. That's so twisted, man. Well, and it's a bit hypocritical because they have soma. That's an overcompensation for when things for, go wrong. For exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, sorry. Yes, stability obsession as well. Uh, doesn't help. I'll read it again. The, um, yeah. Just, just to hammer in that line, uh, actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery. And of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability. And being contented has none of the glamour of a good fight against misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overthrow by passion or doubt. Happiness is never grand. See, and I would argue that that's, that's the happiness as defined by not wanting. And that's not the same. <laughs> Well, to me, it it also feels not human because it seems yeah. humanity, to be human is to have desires. Yes. But not only that, it's to see contentment is easy. There's an expression, I can't remember. It is easy to be content in a time of like when you have everything available, it's easy to be content. There is no nobility in it. But if it's challenging, if there's life has struggle in it, when there's a crisis, when you don't have things, basically, and you can still remain content, like it's, it's not what you need, but what you want. If what you need is met or attempted to be met, but what you want might not be, but you can be content with having what you need. Mm. Then, then you're good. Like that's, that's nobility. That in itself is a sign of, of being able to think beyond yourself. And, and I think maybe I'm thinking, I'm using the wrong word when it comes to like desire and contentment, because I'm thinking a lot about how um, meditation and mindfulness, the idea is to be able to get to a baseline and not, not be taken away by uh, the suffering that comes with like pursuing something and not being able to get it or 
letting your emotions run away with you. But also that suffering is, is such a, like it's going to differ on, on the context as well. It's suffering. Like if, if your only definition of suffering is not getting what you want, mm. that's not suffering. No, it's not. That's discomfort or frustration or, you know, a lack of indulgence is the word I want to go with. Like you're not being indulged, but it's nothing to do with, with, uh, I think, see, for, for my, for the way my brain is working, this is that there's a big distinction between what a need is and what a want is. And mm-hmm. that for me has always been a thing. Like, um, what do people need? No one can determine what another person actually needs. We know the basic stuff of shelter, mm. um, food, clean water, and um, love, love, safety, safe relationships, like relationships that, that you need something that allows you to have connection with one another. Well, because yeah. I'm thinking, you know, um, ideally, when you are born, you will have your parents will love and take care of you and raise you well. And a lot of people don't get that. And no, it, causes, exactly. it causes problems for them. Which is why I'm not, I'm deliberately avoiding parents because it's not necessarily that they need parents. They need people whom they can trust to provide guidance and support. True. But, that's a bit different and affection is is of course something that we thrive under and really i mean there's all the studies that indicate that it is also needed Mm. um as a a thing but see that's where it starts we start going into the thing of what do we actually need what are the minimum needs and the point is we shouldn't be going for the minimum needs we should be going for the needs that allow us to flourish as a society and as humanity not just the minimum whereas this is not about flourishing this is about maintaining so they've gone for the very simple, let's remove the things that cause, that you feel like you want, like give them everything they want, um, but remove what they consider that they need. Well, also I'm thinking, you know, by removing death the way they do, yeah, they 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 uh, remove that anxiety about the end is coming and they remove the man's search for meaning by um, the hypnopedia and the idea that you are specifically designed to do this one thing and society needs you to do this one thing. Do that one thing, yeah. And and the thing is, like, with... um, I don't... I've said this last time or another time. I don't actually fear, fear death. I'm aware of death and I know that it's an inevitability and that I want to do my best before. Mm. But that I don't actually... I can do what I can to not accelerate death. Like, I'm not going to go jump off a cliff with no parachute kind of situation. I'm not going to... Like, I guess I decide what risks I'm ex- willing to accept. I always thought you were a bit of a daredevil, Rue. I, I so, see so, you so, doing <laughs> But the point is that, that it doesn't... But I don't fear it. And I don't... Like, because what are you going to do? Fear the thing that everyone ends up having to experience? Well, that makes no sense in life. Uh, I... I mean, I get, I get it that people would because they feel like they'll have regret or there'll be remorse or I haven't gotten enough done or I, or people are going to be like, I'm going to miss people or like there's all sorts of reasons why people would fear death. This is, I'm not being unsympathetic. I get it. It's just that for me personally, I don't go down that path because I just simply go, look, <laughs> biology dictates, <laughs> physics dictates, like it's like, it's not something that I can avoid. And I think that's why so many people are also fixated on only their legacy and their legacy, their legacy, because they want to live beyond their death. Well, uh, that's definitely true for me. But it's also like I feel where I am in my life, um, especially 
how I was raised as well, that I have like all this unfulfilled potential. And the fear yeah. for me is dying before I get to realize that within me. That's And that's a different way of looking at it. And that's an understandable one. Like, I, yeah, of course, I fear not living up to what I could do. I think that's the expression, not living up to your potential. It In itself, that statement implies death because it means you're not completing your life. You're not fulfilling your life. Mm-hmm. But realistically speaking, you can only do what as much as you can do, given the circumstances, try and overcome the challenges, try and work with the challenges, learn from the challenges and move on, like keep going. Mm. It's, it's the persistence, not necessarily the um, like, it's, it's not like there's someone sitting here with a checklist going, OK, Dave, you had this potential, but you didn't fulfill it. Uh, didn't didn't mark that tech checkbox off my list. You know, like maybe in well, our heads we do it to ourselves. We, we don't know. You know, there there, there could true, be a, there could be an arbiter when, you, when we die. And he goes, well, you you didn't get married. And that's a very human thing to do. So it's true. Minus, minus we, we 10 know. point minus 10 point for Gryffindor. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Like for me, for me, I can't think of that life or death that way. Mm. It just doesn't work. But I get why people do, and I get why people would. And I guess I get the pressure of I'm not living up to my what I could do. But then you pause and you go, can anyone truly claim that they know their ultimate potential? And can anyone truly claim that they have lived or they have like no? But you can try your best given that's, the circumstances. That's true. It seems like it would take a very runaway ego to make that claim. Well, how would you know? How can you know what your potential is? Like, and and, and how can you know that you fulfilled the potential in all your facets of life? There are people who are very multi-talented, and of course, they, we see a lot of this, and we see them also uh, having an impact on society. But what if that's not the end to their potential? What if they had even more potential? And we just don't know it because no one can really gauge what another person is capable of. And, and there, I guess linking with death is the idea of time. And you know, there are plenty of people who it took them till their forties, fifties, sixties, even seventies before they made their mark on the world, but. Be, it makes me wonder as well, you know, the the anxiety someone might have to live with that it takes so long of a life to reach yeah. a spot to hit that. But also who determines when you have and haven't made your, made your That's mark? That's true as well. Because, like, yeah, we, we tend, especially in the creative space, it's like, oh, they did this great thing. And I guess that's another thing that plays into it. Like the idea that so many of the great musicians, like right out of their teenage years in their 20s, they they changed the world with what they could do. And then they kept going on or a lot of them died very young. Well, think of it this way. There's this whole thing in business where like I'm going to just I'm not a person for business. But so in business, you have this idea of. Um, some of the people, the reason they have success is because they, they are never content, they never give up, they keep going, and they always want more. So essentially, it's a culture of greed and wanting yeah. to leave more and more of a mark, having more and more of an impact. And that that applies beyond business. It happens in science. It happens in healthcare. It happens in all aspects of life. I've published this one book. I want to publish another 10. And then after I publish 10, I'll publish another 10. So it's like you, you want to leave your mark, and it's quantitated. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, for example, okay, someone who has helped, um, I'm trying to think of something like, okay, so you go to the grocery store, old lady drops her apples and you pick them up for her. This is pre-COVID. You pick them up for her you, and you pass them back, right? Yep. You don't know 
if that was the most significant action that you have made in someone else's life, yeah. or if you've published 20 million books. We, we, we've talked about that in a previous book. Uh, maybe it was 1984 or... No, I think it was Anne. But yeah, the idea yeah. of... Um, the problem is that we want to see the change we've made. We, we want to see it. We want to see yeah. the, the, what we've had when it, when it could be the most innocuous thing. But the fact you were there and you did that thing, you, you've pushed the world towards a better place. We, we try... Okay. We determine the value of our impact and our fulfillment of potential based on what is valued in our society very heavily. Mm. So, for example, if society values the fact that you have 12 Ferraris and a big swimming pool and have 20 properties and whatever, mm -hmm. and if that's the value that said this is success, this is fulfilling your potential, but society doesn't value the fact that, that, for example, you have a healthy relationship with your family, that you're encouraging, that all your children have felt supported, encouraged, and loved, hmm. have 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 felt safe to turn to you for support and advice, have or, or that you your neighbors know, like, and they really appreciate that you go out and you take the rubbish bins out for them once yeah. in a while because that you know like one of your neighbors has maybe had an operation on their back. Who knows what? I, the question is, do we value kindness or do we value material accumulation or do we value both or do we like so and so depending on what your values are and how they're affected by what society determines as values, your understanding of um, A, the purpose of life, B, the value of your life, C, whether death is actually something to fear or not whether you fulfilled your potential, and if I haven't, have I got regrets? And also, if you beat yourself up every time when you do something wrong. Like, mm. I, I reacted, I, I lashed out a bit emotionally. That, that was not appropriate. Can you actually own up to that and apologize? What do we value? And I think, um, this I've gone into a little side rant here, obviously, but I am finding that in this age of COVID, we are asking this question. Yeah, no, it, it, it feels... It feels like uh, um, what we value is being shaken up. And it yep. seems to be a very individual thing, too. Like, everyone's oh, yeah. really having to wrestle with who they are and what they want. Yep. Everyone is being challenged to actually go, um, like, what if I don't get to see... I mean, we're, we're making... Um, so, yes, absolutely. It's, it's happening on an individual level, but it's also... Because it's happening on such a broad scale as individuals, it's starting to become a conversation amongst community, mm. which is really cool. If you notice in your conversations, try and take stock of your, your post-COVID conversations, so to speak, or the COVID era, PC, uh, <laughs> post-COVID. These times are just too PC. Sorry. Uh, so the post-COVID era, think about the fact what kind of conversations are you having? What kind of conversations are you having? Are you discussing more things like integrity, um, honesty, like these kind of concepts, these values? Do you discuss, are you bypassing the small talk? Like the small talk of, oh, well, yes, the weather was, I've noticed we're mentioning the weather less and less. Yeah, that was that was a prominent feature of our podcast for the longest time. <laughs> but it, it was it was because there was like, out of all the things in the world, the thing that was affecting us the most mm. at that time, I mean, there's other things affecting us as well, but that we could share on the podcast openly and honestly was, hey, okay, the weather, because that's a, a, that's a relatable topic. Mm -hmm. But now we can actually discuss things at a much um, 
like, do we recognize the value? The, what are our values? What do we mm. live by? And we actually go like people, I mean, you and I know have known each other for a while now. And so we yeah. can, but you're going to find that it's, I, I, I would be curious to see if more and more people are noticing it in their long-term friendships and relationships, how they are bypassing that small talk a lot more. And they're going straight to how are you? How are your friends? How are your family? Are you okay? Are you safe? Yeah. How, like rather than going, how about that local sports team? Well, well, there haven't been any sports teams. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been a significant reduction in sports teams uh, for us to view, but like it's it's changed. So mm. what's taken over is we're actually occupying this time of yeah, we're discussing Netflix series and whatever, sure, but we're actually there's an increase in genuinely caring where each other's mental state is at, where each other's physical state is at, and how we're living in 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 a society. Um, how we are part of a society and what we value and what is being valued around us. And I see a lot more people um, increasingly uh, fed up with the way things are and now are now working to take action to change it in a positive mm. manner. Yeah. And I mean, how that looks like will also vary and differ and ineffectiveness and approaches and understandings of what that looks like. And that's fine. I think we're. Um, I think the expression that I'd use is that we are in a stage of adolescence, and we're actually there's there's something going on. But now let us continue, mm. because I would argue that the happiness that they're talking about, I think we, we, it's very clear as to whether this is genuine happiness or true contentment. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, and also so far, Mustafa Mont has been kind of how you said he was going to be. Goes no, I get it. You're right, but. Look, no, we no. look at what we have here. It's an engineered society. Mm. And in, in an engineered society, change has no place. <laughs> yes. Uh, happiness is never grand. I suppose not, said the savage after a silence. But need it be quite so bad as those twins? He passed his hand over his eyes as though he were trying to wipe away the remembered image of those long rows of identical midgets at the assembling tables. Those queued-up twin herds at the entrance to the Brentford monorail station. Those human maggots swarming round Linda's bed of death. The endlessly repeated face of his assailants. He looked at his bandaged left hand and shuddered. Horrible. But how useful. I see you don't like our Bokanovsi groups. But I assure you, they're the foundation on which everything else is built. They're the gyroscope that stabilizes the rocket plane of state on its unswerving course. The deep voice thrillingly vibrated. The gesticulating hand implied all space and the onrush of the irresistible machine. Mustafa Mann's oratory was almost up to synthetic standards. I was wondering, said the savage, why you had them at all, seeing that you can get whatever you want out of those bottles. Mustafa Mond laughed. Because we have no wish to have our throats cut, he answered. We believe in happiness and stability. A society of alphas couldn't fail to be unstable and miserable. Imagine a factory staffed by alphas, that is to say by separate and unrelated individuals of good heredity and conditions so as to be capable, within limits, of making a free choice and assuming responsibilities. Imagine it, he repeated. The savage tried to imagine it, not very successfully. It's an absurdity. An alpha-decanted, alpha-conditioned man would go mad if he had to do epsilon-semi-moron work. Go mad, or start smashing things up. Alphas can be completely socialized, but only on condition that you make them do alpha work. 
Only an Epsilon can be expected to make Epsilon sacrifices, for the good reason that for him, they aren't sacrifices. They're the line of least resistance. His conditioning has laid down rails along which he's got to run. He can't help himself. He's foredoomed. That's a word. Yep. Even after decanting, he's still inside a bottle, an invisible bottle of infantile and embryonic fixations. Each one of us, of course, the controller meditatively continued, goes through life inside a bottle. But if we happen to be alphas, our bottles are, relatively speaking, enormous. We should suffer acutely if we were confined in a narrower space. You cannot pour upper caste champagne surrogate into lower caste bottles. It's obvious theoretically, but it has also been proved in actual practice. The result of the Cyprus experiment was convincing. What was that? asked the savage. Mustafa Mon smiled. Well, you can call it an experiment in rebottling if you like. It began in AF-473. The controllers had the island of Cyprus cleared of all its existing inhabitants and recolonized with a specially prepared batch of 22,000 alphas. All agricultural and industrial equipment was handed over to them and they were left to manage their own affairs. The result exactly fulfilled all the theoretical predictions. The land wasn't properly worked. There were strikes in all the factories. The laws were set at naught. Orders disobeyed. All the people detailed for a spell of low-grade work were perpetually intriguing for high-grade jobs. And all the people with high-grade jobs were counter-intriguing at all costs to stay where they were. Within six years, they were having a first-class civil war. When 19 out of the 22,000 had been killed, the survivors unanimously petitioned the world controllers to resume the government of the island, which they did. And that was the end of the only society of alphas that the world has ever seen. The savage sighed profoundly. The optimum population, said Mustafa Mond, is modeled on the iceberg, eight-ninths below the waterline, one-ninth above. And they're happy below the waterline, happier than above it, happier than your friend here, for example, he pointed. In spite of that awful work, Awful? They don't find it so. On the contrary, they like it. It's light. It's childishly simple. No strain on the mind or the muscles. Seven and a half hours of mild, unexhausting labor. And then the soma ration and games and unrestricted copulation and the feelings. What more can they ask for? True, he added. They might ask for shorter hours. And of course, we could give them shorter hours. Technically, it would be perfectly simple to reduce all lower caste working hours to three or four a day. But would they be any the happier for that? No, they wouldn't. The experiment was tried more than a century and a half ago. The whole of Ireland was put onto the four-hour day. What was the result? Unrest and a large increase in the consumption of soma. That was all. Those three and a half hours of extra leisure were so far from being a source of happiness that people felt constrained to take a holiday from them. The inventions office is stuffed with plans for labor-saving processes. Thousands of them. Mustafa Mond made a lavish gesture. And why don't we put them into execution? For the sake of the laborers. It would be sheer cruelty to afflict them with excessive leisure. It's the same with agriculture. We could synthesize every morsel of food if we wanted to. But we don't. We prefer to keep a third of the population on the land for their own sakes, because it takes longer to get food out of the land than out of a factory. Besides, we have our stability to think of. We don't want to change. Every change is a menace to stability. 
That's another reason why we're so cherry of applying new inventions. Every discovery in pure science is potentially subversive. Even science must sometimes be treated as a possible enemy. Yes, even science. Okay, so, so I'm guessing after that large paragraph, you have some things to comment on. <laughs> no, no, I just had the was thinking about a few things, but it's okay. Like once it's when my thought is gone, it's a bit gone. Um, so we have the um, essentially keep the workers busy, keep you, them busy. You know what I like? Because um, I was thinking about our modern society when he was talking about the problem when he gave them more leisure time is it didn't result in more happiness. And that's because these people are bred just to consume when they're not working. But for how we live, we found, you know, uh, us quote unquote normal humans have found that when we have more leisure time, we have more time to dedicate towards things that actually matter to us. Yeah, but the difference is leisure time in this society has no meaning. Whereas when we have leisure time or we have fewer hours of work, we actually use it to invest in our relationships. In our So if, you've, if you don't have human relationships to deal with, you don't need leisure time as much. If you don't have families to deal with, you don't need that as much. If you don't have um, crafts and arts and things that, to beautify the world, again, you don't need that. Mm. If there is no space for you to advance or grow or educate or become some like to, to explore and, and, and refine your skills, again, so leisure time, literally like mindless, numbing, nothing to do leisure time. Mm. Where the only thing is that they are given sensations, of course. If you're just given sensations for so many hours, that's a for. I'm, I'm just thinking. I'm autistic, so for me, like this idea of sensations for a prolonged amount of time is no, right? No, no. Um, but yeah, so there's that. So you're just giving them a pile, saying shoving them in the corner and telling them to experience a pile of sensations. That's not like the human body does not react well to that psychologically or anything. Mm. So of course they'd be bored. Like they'd be bored. That's what it is. It's emotionally draining and boring. Well, as he said, the sonar ration was upped, which means that to escape from the uh, the um, uh, tedium of all that leisure time, they they were going on holiday. Yeah, which is escapism in itself. And because they're stuck where they are, so to speak, there's nothing for them to do. Mm. Smell things, feel things, hear things things like it's not it's not they're doing anything they want to be so for them with leisure they literally don't do anything yeah i mean yes there's the sports but even the sports are like there's no thinking there's no it's not like it's a there's no meaning to it they're not doing anything It's, it's basically just a social activity no but it's not even a social activity social means that you're building up relationships there's no relationships without building of relationships you are not engaging in an activity that is social. Which which is so weird, you know, when you say that, to think about how they think about it being antisocial to be alone. You, They always want you with people. Yeah, but, so but they the, want you with people, but no relations. Yeah. So, so yes. Even science. Science, the savage frowned. He knew the word, but what it exactly signified, he could not say. Shakespeare and the old man of the Pueblo had never mentioned science, and from Linda he had only gathered the vaguest hints. Science was something you made helicopters with, something that caused you to laugh at the corn dances, something that prevented you from being wrinkled and losing your teeth. He made a desperate effort to take the controller's meaning. Yes, Mustafa Mond was saying, 
That's another item in the cost of stability. It isn't only art that's incompatible with happiness. It's also science. Science is dangerous. We have to keep it most carefully chained and muzzled. What? said Helmholtz in astonishment. But we're always saying that science is everything. It's a hypnopedic platitude. Three times a week between 13 and 17, put in Bernard. And all the science propaganda we do at the college. Yes, but what sort of science? asked Mustafa Mann sarcastically. You've had no scientific training, so you can't judge. I was a pretty good physicist in my time. Too good. Good enough to realize that all our science is just a cookery book. How old is Mustafa Mond? He might be 50. I don't think so. Because they, they end at 60. Yes, sorry. Quote, unquote, they. Ah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have brought up the yeah. idea that he may be a quote, unquote, normal human. I think he is. Because he comes from a background of being a physicist. There's no point in having a physicist in this current society. Which is also weird because, you know, they talked about the experiments. That was like 473 AF. So like 500 years at least have passed since this whole stuff had started. Mm -hmm. So they must, yeah, they must keep real scientists around. They must keep real humans around. That or they don't let them die because remember they've got the ability to stop them from aging. Like there's that thing of... Oh, there's that too. Yeah, so I'm wondering if they kept a select few, said, okay, you guys don't age and maintain the experiment. And maybe that's why he has almost such a meditative uh, view of everything that's going on. Yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. So that, there we go. So I was too good. Good enough to realize that all our science is just a cookery book with an orthodox theory of cooking that nobody's allowed to question. Uh, okay, no, no, no. So, so he was... He was, he's not like he's ancient. It's that he was like, say, in Helmholtz, but in, mm. in the realm of science. Yeah. But extra smart. And he did talk about he was reading that paper from a, uh, that was set to be published. And he's like, no, we can't publish this. So yeah. obviously there are still like scientists publishing, trying to publish papers of investigation. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, with an orthodox theory of cooking that nobody's allowed to question, and a list of recipes that mustn't be added to except by special permission from the head cook. I'm the head cook now. But I was an inquisitive young scullion once. I started doing a bit of cooking on my own. Unorthodox cooking. A list cooking. A bit of real science, in fact. He was silent. What happened? asked Helmholtz Watson. The controller sighed. Very nearly what's going to happen to you, young man. I was on the point of being sent to an island. The words galvanized Bernard into violent and unseemly activity. Send me to an island. He jumped up, ran across the room, and stood gesticulating in front of the controller. You can't send me. I haven't done anything. It was the others. I swear it was the others. He pointed accusingly to Helmholtz and the savage. Oh, please don't send me to Iceland. I promise I'll do what I ought to do. Give me another chance. Please give me another chance. The tears began to flow. I tell you, it's their fault, he sobbed. And not to Iceland. Oh, please, your fortune, please. And in a paroxysm of objection, he threw himself on his knees before the control. <laughs> Ruth's rolling her eye. Sorry. This is a, such, a, such a sycophant. I believe last episode you said Bernard's going to blame the others. And <laughs> yeah. Nothing if not predictable. Mustafa Mann tried to make him get up, but Bernard persisted in his groveling. 
the stream of words poured out inexhaustibly. In the end, the controller had to ring for his fourth secretary. Bring three men, he ordered, and take Mr. Marks into a bedroom. Give him a good sum of vaporization, and then put him to bed and leave him. The fourth secretary went out and returned with three green-uniformed twin footmen, still shouting and sobbing. Bernard was carried out. One would think he was going to have his throat cut, said the controller, as the door closed. Whereas, if he had the smallest sense, he'd understood that his punishment is really a reward. He's being sent to an island. That's to say, he's being sent to a place where he'll meet the most interesting set of men and women to be found anywhere in the world. All the people who, for one reason or another, have got too self-consciously individual to fit into community life. All the people who aren't satisfied with orthodoxy, who've got independent ideas of their own, everyone in a word who's anyone. I almost envy you, Mr. Watson, Helmholtz laughed. Then why aren't you on an island yourself? Because, finally, I preferred this, the controller answered. I was given the choice, to be sent to an island where I could have got on with my pure science, or to be taken on to the controller's council with the prospect of succeeding in due course to an actual controllership. I chose this and let the science go. After a little silence, sometimes, he added, I rather regret the science. Happiness is a hard master, particularly other people's happiness. A much harder master, if one isn't conditioned to accept it unquestioningly, than truth. This He's, guy's like O'Brien, but just like actually aware. It's an aware O'Brien. Yeah, he's he he's not uh, a zealot. No, well, he is and he isn't. He's a zealot for the system, but he's not, uh, like, not blindly so. And I guess it helps that this is in a society that tortures and kills and punishes those who step yeah. out of line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he sighed, fell silent again, then continued in a brisker tone. Well, duty's duty. One can't consult one's own preference. I'm interested in truth. I like science, but truth is a menace. Science is a public danger, as dangerous as it's been beneficent. It has given us the stablest equilibrium in history. China's was hopelessly insecure by comparison. Even the primitive matriarchies weren't steadier than we are, thanks, I repeat, to science. But we can't allow science to undo its own good work. That's why we so carefully limit the scope of its researches. That's why I almost got sent to an island. We don't allow it to deal with any but the most immediate problems at the moment. All other inquiries are most sedulously discouraged. It's curious, he went on after a little pause, to read what people in the time of our four used to write about scientific progress. They seem to have imagined that it could be allowed to go on indefinitely, regardless of everything else. Knowledge was the highest good, truth the supreme value. All the rest was secondary and subordinate. True, ideas were beginning to change even then. I was going to say that that's the, the underpinning philosophy of science that is sometimes still lost in our current understanding because um, what is... Much like in this world, science is one is said or perceived to be one thing versus what it actually is. Mm. Yeah, it's also currently a challenge we have in our current society. So, yes. Uh, our fortship did a great deal to shift the emphasis from truth and beauty to comfort and happiness. Mass production demanded the shift. Universal happiness keeps the wheel steadily turning. Truth and beauty can't. And of course, whenever the masses seized political power, 
then it was happiness rather than truth and beauty that mattered. Still, in spite of everything, unrestricted scientific research was still permitted. People still went on talking about truth and beauty as though they were the sovereign goods, right up to the time of the Nine Years' War. That made them change their tune, all right. What's the point of truth or beauty or knowledge when the anthrax bombs are popping all around you? That was when science first began to be controlled, after the Nine Years' War. People were ready to have even their appetites controlled then, anything for a quiet life. We've gone on controlling ever since. It hasn't been very good for truth, of course, but it's been very good for happiness. One can't have something for nothing. Happiness has got to be paid for. You're paying for it, Mr. Watson. Paying because you happen to be too much interested in beauty. I was too much interested in truth. I paid too. But you didn't go to an island, said the savage, breaking a long silence. The controller smiled. That's how I paid. By choosing to serve happiness. Other people's, not mine. It's lucky, he said after a pause, that there are such a lot of islands in the world. I don't know what we should do without them. Put you all in the lethal chamber, I suppose. By the way, Mr. Watson, would you like a tropical climate? The Marquesas, for example, or Samoa, or something rather more bracing. Helmholtz rose from his pneumatic chair. I should like a thoroughly bad climate, he answered. I believe one would write better if the climate were bad, if there were a lot of wind and storms, for example. The controller nodded his approbation. I like your spirit, Mr. Watson. I like it very much indeed. As much as I officially disprove of it, he smiled. What about the Falkland Islands? Yes, I think that will do, Helmholtz answered. And now, if you don't mind, I'll go and see how poor Bernard's getting on. <sighs> it's basically a society that was traumatized by war. And this was written after World War One, and as World War Two was escalating. Yeah, essentially, I, I would argue that both 1984 and Brave New World are exploring concepts that the war brought out in the population, just taking it to the extreme. Yeah. Um, that people threw themselves into escapism and consumerism to, to just feel like something. And I mean, if you look at the 1950s, mm. this is not that far. Yeah. From, from the kind of attitudes and mentalities behind it. Um, and, and actually, I would argue that's roughly where science started to develop this strange shift as well in terms of philosophy. We're now only starting to kind of go, wait a second, what's the purpose, the philosophy uh, of science? And it, it came up today in the healthcare um, discussion on um, a healthcare matter that is severely affected by industrial decisions and, and lobbyists and other things who determine where the outcomes for health are, are always awful or like there, there's a problem and it's being contributed to because industries and their complex and humanity is dependent on them for their livelihood. So they end up feeding back into uh, unhealthy things that actually cause suffering. So it's it's like hmm. it's a right right old mess. Uh, I'm not going to bring up the topic because it is self, that becomes very complex. But the idea that there's different um, facets to any health question, like it's not just a question of there's a disease, here's a treatment. Da -da. No, it's like there's social factors, there's psychological factors, there's access to healthcare, there's um, the cause behind it. And what is the cause? Is it just is it uh, patterns of behavior? Is it things that, that people are exposed to in, in their child? Is it a lack of prioritizing that this is an issue? Um, and so the problem is that we move from science to 
from let's figure this out, let's keep advancing, let's keep learning and see what we can do and apply how we can apply it. And, and I mean, blind science is not good either. We don't want to have science that's just for the purpose of science. But then it became, this is what I want for the population and now I'm going to make things fit mm. to, 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 to confirm that this is how I feel the population will benefit versus let's find out what's actually going on in the population and learn from it. Um, so yeah, it's, there's a shift we're returning. It's not that everyone was like this, but there was a general. We've had some issues in the 50s and 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Like it, it's been taking time to come back to this state of we need to actually well it, it, have it's, a lot more transparency. Yeah. It's that idea as well, where um, it's a little conspiracy theory ish. So I I loathe to um, bring it up, but I'm going to. Uh, it's it's that idea that you know. Uh, advancements in uh, new new ways to create fuel or to create power or even you know actually a big one is a new website comes around that's like a better facebook well facebook's so big that it can just buy it and bury yeah look all those that kind of thing is the the conspiracy to prevent progress because the existing um structures will not benefit if there is a change Look, that's not conspiracy theory. That's fact. There is industrial. There are industrial incentives to um, essentially cause micro stagnancy, right? Financially, you're going to have. Okay, uh, this is not speaking about a particular. Say you have a particular plant or particular agricultural product. I'm not mentioning the agricultural product, but say you have a particular agricultural product and it is able to be utilized in mass production of various things, of foods or fabrics or whatever. Mm-hmm. If it is not going to be in the interest of the in, of the industries and the companies and the farmers and everyone to move away from a plant that they've now developed and adapted to growing on mass. Mm. And if someone comes and says, well, this plant's actually better, it's, it's less impactful for the environment, it has fewer health uh, issues, uh, all that kind of thing, it is, there is a, there, we know that there are powerful interests when it comes to these things. It doesn't mean that the individual population... Okay, this is the thing I really don't like. I don't like it when they say, well, you're sheep if you don't believe this is... No, we know this is a thing. No one is arguing that there is no corruption. There is corruption. We know this. This is mm. essentially corruption. But going back to the beginning of our podcast, when we were discussing the values that we have, and we look at the values that Mustafa Mond is describing, happiness, contentment uh, versus beauty and truth mm. and other ideals, um, we are now at a state globally where individuals are starting to question what the priorities are, what the values are. Do we value integrity over comfort? Do we value the safety of more people versus the rights and, and entitlement of a few. Mm. Do we, like all these things are now where, where it's, it's really coming to a fore. And I mean, it's being indicated that in this fictional society, those values were just dismissed and the focus was given, what can we do to control people so they don't have to think, they don't have to feel beyond what we tell them to feel and think. Mm. Whereas humanity, we know that ain't the way. We, we try and have it emulated and projected on us. And if, if we were little tin soldiers and easy to control, yes, sure. But it's not the way we are. We're not programs. We're not software. And we're not hardware. We can be influenced. We can be affected. We can be encouraged, exhorted. But we have to actually come up with, like, what is it that we value? 
We need mm. to figure that out. And then, and as we're doing that, it will influence things that lead to corruption. If you've got, say you've got 20 people on this entire planet and 19 of them uh, don't value integrity and one does. So you have, a, those 20 people are going to be okay with living in, like that one person doesn't feel they can make a difference and then you have a society that's completely corrupt. Like they were describing in the Cyprus um, experiment, those who are in a state of the, the higher um, activities, where is it? Yeah, yeah was, those, they were all yeah. alphas. Yeah, so they were all alphas. So assume all of them had high intellectual capacity, high optimum physical capacity. All these things are positive, right? In mm. terms of the, those things that we, we deem positive, negative, whatever. So they had all the advantages. Prime examples of humans, yes? Yes. But if you go to it, they, they were... They didn't like doing the low-grade work, so they tried to get out of it. And those who had the high-grade work didn't want to let go of it. Mm. And we were talking about this before, that it also depends on what we value and consider to be high-grade, low-grade, and what our relationship is with in society. If we consider yeah. all I'm doing is, oh, I don't want to do menial work because it's menial and people look down on me. Mm. Whereas you go, hey, menial work is what allows the society to actually have, I don't know, like garbage collection is one of the most important important jobs out there Make sewage them. systems hmm. you want one of the prime ways to reduce disease and death and harm and suffering have hygiene systems hmm. have sanitation um and, and if you think of it that way nothing is menial everything has meaning yeah but because they're intellectual they're smart whatever all these things the, the, and they those roles and res responsibilities were looked down on and the jobs were being rostered or like rotated, they didn't like it. They're uncomfortable jobs. They don't like it. They want comfort. And because there's no meaning in this world, it's not like they can do their shift and then pursue uh, whatever interests them outside of work. Exactly. No, job no. is all they have. And if they feel above the job, yeah, then um, well, it's they're not miserable. Only above the, yeah, it's not just above the job when you don't... Well, it's uncomfortable. Those are uncomfortable and hard work jobs those are hard things to do mm. i mean who wants to be around poo yeah no one does but if if there isn't at least some someone who sees themselves as if i do this job i'm contributing to a society i mean of course it's also pay but mm -hmm. it's also i'm contributing to how this society prevents disease without me you would all be you know neck deep in shit Sorry for the crude example, but like there's there's a purpose for it, and looking down on any role or responsibility doesn't work. Yeah, so and so there's no benefit to any of us if we look down on these roles and if we don't all take responsibility in some way, and and you know work it out. It's it's really it's a big topic. This whole thing is mm. a huge discussion. But to, to say that that any realm is free of corruption is not. A thing everything has that risk of corruption hey um so we a couple things i wanted to run by you then from yes. that chapter uh one of them was we we got uh a better idea of what the islands are and that bernard and helmholtz are both uh going to be sent to one yes let me just read that sentence again actually very nearly what's going to happen to you, young men. I was on the point of being sent to an island. So yeah, there we go. Is like, there's the statement of, yeah, I had a choice. You don't. You're being sent to an island. That's that. Mm. As we said, that was, that was, that was an assumption that I was going to make. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, Off to the it, islands. 
it, it, it also kind of speaks to like, you know, as smart as you thought you are, Helmholtz, and you are smart, you're not smart enough to uh, have further value to us for us to offer you a choice. I think it's not because he's not smart. I think it's because of beauty versus truth. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so he did make that distinction. You're, you're too uh, obsessed with beauty. I was too obsessed with truth. And with truth, it's easier to put that to the side if you realize the purpose is the happiness. So for him, for his scientific brain, and I can get this, I understand it, I don't agree with it. Um, his scientific brain is going, look, for the greater good, for the greater mm-hmm. good, for the greater good, for the happiness of others as defined by our parameters of what is happiness... Whereas Helmholtz would question happiness. Be, be, yeah, it, it's almost that art versus science thing. Yeah. Helmholtz would question the, 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 the statement of the definitions of, of uh, happiness and stability. Whereas for this, for uh, Mustafa, he's going, well, stability means there's no unnecessary deaths. There's a measurement reduction of conflict and uh, like he's going completely metric. And this, by the way, is what happens when science goes to the extreme, and that's not good either. Um, but yeah, it, it is essentially using a scientific brain and then twisting it and not going into the actual meaning of science, but just looking at science as it's just measurement. Mm. Science is all about measurement, whereas it's not. It's beyond measurement as well. And then uh, finally, um, Helmholtz went to check on Bernard, and chapter yeah. ends with John left alone with Mustafa Mann. So uh, there's more conversation coming in the next chapter. Yeah, I'm curious what's going to happen with um, with John. Well, John John's getting sent to an island as well. Yes, you think so? Well, he said, "Was who was he talking to?" Bernard. He's talking about Bernard. Oh no, no, he was talking. No, no, he was talking to Helmholtz when he said, "What's going to happen to you, young men?" Yeah, but he was talking about Bernard being dragged out. No, no, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, if you go back to what happened, Helmholtz Watson, the controller side, very nearly what's going to happen to you, young men. I was on the point of being sent to an island. So when he was talking to Helmholtz, he said he was going to be sent to an island, and the, Bernard also inferred it was him. I don't know if the, if John is being sent as well, but I wouldn't be surprised. And I wonder if he's going to ask to be sent away from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he, he certainly, I mean, even in that chapter, when he recalled just all the people looking exactly the same, he shuddered. He's like, this this ain't right. Yeah. Yeah. But also, additionally, he's he's looking at, um, okay, think about the fact. Do, do you think that he wants to be around Helmholtz or Bernard? No. No. Helmholtz, who doesn't understand anything about humanity and who will be constantly trying to regale him with his newest art well and yeah here's the thing sure that's a cool idea we have islands to send all the people who aren't satisfied with the way our society runs but at the end of the day they're all still conditioned yeah yeah bernard is not going to cope with the island because there's no comfort yeah actually he's probably going to be just as miserable on the island yeah bernard out of all of them was as just as conditioned as his friends even though he knew Mm. it's so funny he thought he was uh, he would thought he was a man of science. That's why. <laughs> Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Mm, yes, yes. I like how Lenina's been left out of this. Yeah, um, I mean, we got a couple chapters left. Yeah, that's true. But I don't see I don't see anything as happening with Lenina. Yeah, yeah. She um, she tried and failed, I guess. 
She tried to be human, and yet it didn't happen. Okay, so um, thoughts. I mean, I guess that's what we talked about. Uh, thoughts about what's happening next. Yes, yes. So next time on Brave New World, I see the conversation continuing with Mustafa Mond. I don't know if we're going to find out what happens to Helmholtz and Bernard on the island. I don't. I think they're just. I, they're not the main characters anymore. It's John. Yes, and and that's actually um, we're we're far enough into the book that I can talk about that because that's one of the things I like so much about Brave New World. How, for the first half, Bernard is the main character, and then it he kind of stays in 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 that role for a while, but it then it gradually switches over to John as the book goes forward. And I like that idea yeah. that the book switched main characters in the middle. Yeah, and then Lenina arguably was somewhere in there as well. We never gain insights into how Helmholtz is feeling because he's never, mm. we're never in his mind. Yeah, he he is definitely a side character. He is definitely, yeah. We're never in his mind, whereas Lenina, we hear her internal dialogue. Mm. Same with John, same with Bernard. Um, so interesting. But we're going to, um, yeah, I'd say there's going to be a conversation. Um, he'll either, I think, be sent to an island or... Mustafa might keep him as a pet. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny because, I mean, that's basically what he's been. He's been a novel curiosity. Yeah, he's been entertainment, mm -hmm. which is really disturbing on so many levels. But yeah, I don't see this as ending. Well, we know it's not going to end well. So off go Bernard and Helmholtz into the sunset. <laughs> in the meantime uh, i wonder what island bernard's going to get sent to if he's going to go to the same island hmm he probably would like to stay by his friend but i don't know if he could handle rough uh weather no no what did you think about helmholtz saying no i want a place where the weather is bad i think i could create better under those circumstances he's not wrong for him he's seeking suffering like but that's because he's never had suffering and he's recognized that and I mean, uh, Mustafa explained, basically, we don't let them suffer because if they can suffer, well, he was saying it, the happiness and the joy, where is it? I will find it. Actual happiness looks pretty squalid in comparison with, uh, with the overcompensations for misery. And of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability. Being contented has none of the glamour of a good fight against more misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overthrow by passion or doubt. That. Is what it is. So he's going, okay, so by that logic, if I seek a place that is not comfortable, I will actually understand what it means to have like, the, have that proper joy mm. um, from, of a hard-won struggle kind of thing. Which I get. I can get that. But it's doing, it's doing the whole seeking, seeking the struggle, which is a bit weird. <laughs> it's like he's looking to grow. Well, yeah. Well, yes, he is. He's looking to grow. Well, that's been the whole thing. Helmholtz's situation has been he's wanting to grow. Bernard has been, he wants to feel superior. Yes. And John so, just wants to belong. Yeah. Poor John. He's just, there's, poor John. There's there's no chance for John. Yeah, yeah. And he can't belong in a society that doesn't, that doesn't have relationships because he's basically seeking a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's not possible. Yep. Not available. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I, I I've never heard that before in my life. 
Um, okay. Well, shall we wrap up? Yes, let us wrap up. Um, well, thank, thank you for listening uh, to what has been another very enjoyable podcast to record. Um, the music at the top of the podcast was sung by Lionel Moser. The music at the end is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore Chirrup. And you can find me at Rue McMoo um, and our podcast at SMBSLT podcast, both on Twitter and Facebook. And if you add an at gmail.com, you've got our email address. We'd uh, love for you to send us some feedback, how you're enjoying the books. Uh, if uh, our discussion has prompted any ideas within you that you would like to share, uh, if you have suggestions for future books you would like to see us cover. Yeah, all happy. We're all welcome. Um, and two more chapters to go. Mm. And then we leave this brave new world. Yes. yes into, we a, do. into another brave new world. Because every book is kind of its own brave new world. In a sense, yes. Yes. Yeah. I've actually forgotten what the book is that we're doing next time, but that's just me. I'll remind you after we're done. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so uh, until next time, uh, happy reading and stay safe, everybody.